three years into growing up in the streets, I was standing on the corner on the west side of Detroit, March 8, 1990, when I was shot multiple times. After I got shot, I went to the hospital. They extracted two of the bullets. They left one of the bullets in, which I still have to this day, patched me up, and within days, I was right back in my neighborhood. No one talked to me, not a, you know, not a doctor, not a social worker, not a psychiatrist or psychologist. I am Vishen Lakiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas and personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. Hi, everyone, and welcome to a special episode of the Mind Valley podcast while in quarantine. Now, speaking of quarantine, many of us are stuck in our homes. We've been here for about a month, and it's starting to get. It's starting to give us some angst. We're starting to get impatient about this. I thought it would be amazing today to bring on to a podcast someone who can truly talk about that feeling of isolation, that feeling of helplessness, and to give some perspective on what we might be going through. His name is Shaka Senghor. And here's the unique thing about Shaka. He was just on Oprah's new Apple TV show on COVID-19. You see, Shaka was imprisoned for 19 years for second degree murder. And when he was put in prison in Michigan, he spent seven of those 19 years in solitary confinement, four and a half years of that, back to back. Imagine being in a cell with no way to get out, with complete social isolation. Now to most people, it would break them. Now Shaka has atoned for his past. He has now been released from prison, but his story, has become truly powerful because he spoke about how even being in that sense of isolation, there is so much that we can do to heal ourselves, to grow ourselves, and to emerge stronger. This is why in 2016, Oprah put him on her list of the top 100 most inspiring souls on the planet. And I'm delighted to have Shaka Senghor joining us today on the Mind Valley podcast. So Shaka, welcome to Mind Valley. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Now, you've been through some really crazy times. I want you to just share your story of how you ended up in prison. What has happened since you've been released? Because there are so many deep lessons there for everyone who's listening. In 1986, at the age of 14, I ran away from an abusive household. I grew up with a household that looked like the modern interpretation of black middle-class, working-class America on the east side of Detroit. And unfortunately, what was happening on the inside was toxic. And so at 14, I decided to run away. I was an honor roll scholarship student who had dreams of being a doctor. And when I ran away, I thought that somebody would take me in, embrace me with the love and warmth that I think all teenagers are worthy of. And unfortunately, that didn't happen. I found myself quickly seduced into a culture of street violence, drug trafficking, and something that I hadn't even imagined for my life. Within the first six months of being in that culture, I was robbed at gunpoint. I was beaten nearly to death. My childhood friend was murdered. And yet, I found myself still deeply entrenched in the culture. Three years into growing up in the streets, I was standing on the corner on the west side of Detroit, March 8, 1990, when I was shot multiple times. After I got shot, I went to the hospital. They extracted two of the bullets. They left one of the bullets in, which I still have to this day, patched me up. And within days, I was right back in my neighborhood.
No one talked to me, not a, you know, not a doctor, not a social worker, not a psychiatrist or psychologist. And what I do understand now is that I was experiencing high levels of PTSD. And so when I got back to my neighborhood, I didn't feel safe. So I began to carry a gun. 16 months later, I found myself in a conflict and I fired the shots that tragically caused the man's death. I was subsequently arrested, charged with second degree murder and convicted and sentenced to 17 to 40 years in prison. I was one month into my 19th birthday when I was arrested. And so I spent 19 years in total in prison. Seven of those years was in solitary confinement. Wow. Now, I love the context of your story because what I realized as I got to know you is so often we've created a situation where we look at someone who has done a crime, in your case, second degree murder, and we immediately assume that this is a malicious entity that needs to be locked away for a good deal of time and kept away from other people. But we forget to see that this person is often not malicious, but that they were hurt, they were broken, they went through some crazy shit when they were young. There were no social safety nets, there was no way for you as a young, black teen growing up in inner city Detroit to be able to get access to mental health or a support network. And so there's nothing we're doing to prevent these things, but we wait for someone to break and then we lock them up and we perpetuate the cycle. Absolutely. And it's one of the reasons that the recidivism rate is upwards of 70% in America, which houses the most incarcerated people in the world despite that we only make up 5% of the world population, we house 25% of incarcerated people throughout the world. And when you really start getting into the stories of how people end up in prison, and it's one of the reasons I began to write about my experiences. I really wanted people to understand a backstory. It's easy to lock people up, throw away the key, and judge them from the safety nets of whatever perch we sit upon. What's a little more complex is to actually dig into how does a kid go from on a roll scholarship student with dreams of being a doctor to serve out their most promising years in prison. And I wanted to really peel those layers back to people. And I think right now with what's going on, this is a perfect time for people to really have empathy and compassion and really understand the psychology of so many young people who are growing up in these communities. For example, people who are currently quarantined, they're losing it. I mean, it's really tough and they're suffering anxiety. They don't know what's going to happen. They don't know if the stranger that they encounter is a carrier of coronavirus. And so they're very distanced, very fearful. Our movements has changed. The way that we engage and react to people has changed. Now imagine being 14 years old where all around you, you're seeing high levels of gun violence and you're not sure that every person you encounter could potentially be the person that ends your life. And then you become a victim of gun violence. And now that goes to a whole nother level. And this is your day-to-day -day reality. So what we're experiencing now, even within the safety of our homes, as uncomfortable as it is, there's a whole segment of our society that's been experiencing this from the time that they were kids, that they don't feel safe in their own homes. They don't feel safe in their own communities because they feel like death or something potentially harmful can happen to them every moment they step out of their door. And yet they're told that they have to function as the rest of the world. And the reality of the experience is very different. It's tragic. And I'm impressed by what you were able to go through and how you were able to emerge from that. 
as someone who had such a degree of self-awareness that you were able to ask for forgiveness, you were able to atone for the mistakes you made, but you were able to use that time in solitary confinement to completely change your consciousness and become a new person. What would be some of the practices, some of the tools or ideas that you would share with the billions of people around the world right now who are not, of course, in the situation you were in, but are in quarantine at home? So there were three things that I discovered when I was in solitary that became the pathway forward. And they were inspired by three very unique things that happened during my incarceration that I call my three little miracles. The first miracle was I met some incredible mentors. These are men who are currently dying in prison, you know, just from old age and from being in for so long. But these men saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. They saw a redemption. And so they challenged me and they gave me incredible books to read. The second miracle was I received a letter of forgiveness from the woman who raised the man whose life I was responsible for taking. And she wrote me this really powerful letter and told me who David was, what he meant to his family, what he meant to her, and how devastating it was that they lost the loved ones at the hands of gun violence. But within that, she told me that she forgave me and not only forgave me, that she loved me. And the third thing was getting a letter from my son who was expressing his understanding of his mother sharing a story of me being in prison and why I was there. When I got that letter from my son, it was kind of like the proverbial story that broke the camel's back. In terms of it, it really opened me up in this very different way where I was able to see myself as a full, actualized human being. And I made a commitment that if I was going to be in prison for the rest of my life or whether I was to get free, that I had a responsibility to give my son a father he can be proud of. And I began to journal. I began to write because I had to understand why I ended up in prison. And at this time, I was reading philosophy and I was reading uh, Socrates' Apology, where he says that unexamined life isn't worth living. And so I went back and I began to examine how did I go from this kid with so much promise to serving out my most promising years in prison? And through that process, I realized that I had internalized a narrative that didn't belong to me. It belonged to those who had harmed me and who had abused me and things of that nature. And what I discovered in the process that if I was going to get back to society or I was going to emerge from solitary confinement as a different human being, there were three steps that I had to take. One, I had to acknowledge the harm that I had caused and also had to acknowledge the harm that had been caused to me. Secondly, I had to apologize to those who I had hurt and also had to apologize to myself for not being stronger and, and more resilient and making better decisions. And then the third thing is that I had to atone. And one, I had atone to my community because I knew that the life that I took was a life that had meaning and purpose in the community and that my actions had devastated our community. And then also had to atone with myself and become whole again and to really imagine a different version of myself leaving solitary confinement who had really put the work in the hill. And so I made a commitment to prove to myself that I was really committed to living my life differently. And the first thing I did is I challenged myself to write a book in 30 days. And I knew that if I completed that 30-day journey of writing a book, that my life would never be the same. And it's proven to be true. How long were you in solitary confinement? How long were you in prison, rather, before you gave yourself that challenge to write a book? 
this happened during about my second year of the longest four and a half year stretch of solitary. So it was around 2001. So about 10 years, I had been in prison for about 10 years when I decided to really shift into a higher purpose and reimagine a world for myself, even within the confines of this horrible, brutal environment, I was able to find my light. And one of the things that I realized through journaling that if I can get through the pain of the moment, I can come out on the other side of this thing. And I made a commitment to go on that journey and the sacrifice of comfort of being stuck and trapped in this narrative that unfortunately is normalized for Black boys growing up in inner city communities. And so for me, journaling and writing and being honest with myself in the rawest and most brutal way evoked the challenge to complete something because I, I realized I had never completed anything. Wow. And so I wrote that first book in 30 days and it changed my life in ways that are now super present in how I live my life currently. Shaka, is that book that you wrote in 30 days, was that the one that went on to become your New York Times bestseller or did that come later? The New York Times bestseller I actually wrote when I got out of prison. I see. I just want to read out the name. It's Writing My Wrongs, Life, Death and Redemption in an American Prison. Yeah, I started off writing fiction and largely because I was so inspired by my mentors to read and the way I got introduced to literature in that environment was through fiction, which led me to philosophy and political science and theology and all the other things that I began to study. But fiction is where I got my start. Amazing. Amazing. So you were not just writing a book. You gave yourself a challenge to write a book in 30 days. But at the same time, you were also journaling. Yes. Okay. Now, I'd love for you to paint a picture for us because I'm fascinated by how you came through this. What was solitary confinement like for people who might not be familiar with what that looks like? Paint a picture. What does the cell look like? Are you getting human contact? What are you eating? What does that feel like? Yeah, so solitary confinement is very barbaric in the sense that it's minimal human contact. And the human contact that you do have isn't a nurturing, loving, caring, tender human contact. It's strip searches. It's being handcuffed just to go out to the recreation yard. And so that's the only time that you come into any physical contact with another person is when the officers are shackling you up to take you to the solitary rec yard, which is basically a dog kennel run. And when you get your shower three times a week, we were allotted three showers in this little shower cage where they would cuff me up at my door, walk me down the tier with a leash, like it was literally a leash attached to the handcuffs, like I was a wild animal. And then they would put me in this little shower cage for five minutes or so, three times a week. The cell was about six by nine, very barren, Spartan-like cell, nothing in there but a plastic thin mattress on top of a concrete slab, a steel toilet sink combination, a very narrow window that you can see out into the prison community, so to speak. And then there was a window on the door that had a shutter that the officers controlled so they can close the shutter and you can't see anything or they can open and you can just see a glimpse of the hallway, which is basically another cell door. So the human contact emerges in very different ways. We would have to lay on the floor and talk up under the door to each other and learn to identify each other through voice. In some instances, we would talk through the electrical socket 
to the men who were in sales below us or above us, depending on which tier you were on. But human contact was very minimal. And so that's the world that I existed in. Why? I mean, it just seems so barbaric and brutal. Why? Like this actually really, really angers me right now. I mean, it just seems so inhumane that this type of justice system exists in a country like America. But I'm trying to understand this deeper. What do you think the designers of this system hope to achieve by putting you in solitary confinement for four and a half years? I mean, I get traditional prison. Most of the world has traditional prison. But solitary confinement is something that is fairly unique to the American prison system. What do you think it's meant to do? When I think about what the intentions and the intended outcomes were, and I think about back to my experience of being in prison, I know how fortunate I am to be literate because literacy allowed me to read books that helped me understand exactly what the environment was designed to do. And it isn't designed to help you become a better person. It's actually designed to break you down and to destroy any semblance of your humanity that you have left. I witnessed men in that environment cut themselves with anything that they can get their hands on, from staples out of magazines to swallowing batteries. There was one man who was about two cells down from me. He was so oppressed by the officers in that environment based on his sexuality that he set himself on fire in the cell. And the level of desperation in that environment is something that most people can't even begin to imagine. When you even think about the psychological effects, all signs point to after 90 days, the brain begins to break down. And we're seeing that now with coronavirus, where people have been quarantined for about a month or so. And there's a real mental effect that is starting to have on people, the anxiety, the depression, the feelings of loneliness, the isolating feelings. So you imagine that when you're in a cell that's the size of most people's bathroom, and it's a very loud environment obnoxiously horrible in terms of how it smelled. And, you know, it took me years to even develop empathy for the officers who work in the environment because I realized that they were reacting as opposed to being proactive based on an environment that had been created long before they began to work there. And so psychologically, they were walking into an environment that damaged them in their sense of understanding. And I mean, there's experiments that's shown what happens to human beings when they're given absolute power over powerless people. And the other part of it is mental illness in prisons is something that we don't talk about enough. And I can estimate that at least 80 to 90% of the men I was around personally suffered some form of mental illness to some degree or another. And because it's hard for our system to acknowledge mental illness without criminalizing it, they end up further damaging people who are already suffering. And so you know, the punitive nature of our prison system is rooted in the enslavement of people who were brought to the shores. The 13th Amendment was supposed to end slavery, but there's a loophole in that amendment that says if you've been duly convicted of a crime, you can be subject to involuntary servitude. And so as slavery began to dissipate, prison began to emerge, and a lot of those barbaric practices carried over. And the reality is, in America, because it impacts mostly poor people and people of color, we have turned a blind eye to the suffering on the inside. And so what I knew that I had a responsibility to do was to be a credible witness to what I had experienced once I got out of prison. This is one of the reasons that I talk so freely and openly 
about my experience because I don't want America to sit in the comfort of not knowing what our tax dollars pay for and what's happening to currently 2.4 million of our citizens, but it's upwards of 20 million people who have been impacted by the system in some way, shape, form, or another. And I wanted to bear witness to that in a real way. I'm so glad that people like you are speaking up. When you were in solitary confinement, so you had access, so you said you were writing a book. What did that look like? Were you given access to a laptop? Was it a typewriter? Was it paper and a pencil? In solitary, you don't have any access to any of those tools. They give you a very flimsy pen. It's almost like the inside of a regular pen. So you know that little pen, that little ink cartridge? I would have a pen that was about that flimsy, and I would take that pen and I would roll it up in paper. And I just rolled it up in paper until the paper was nice and firm. And then I would write on notepads that I was able to get from the store. Whenever I didn't have notepads, I would just write on any paper I had, you know, paper I tore out of other books envelopes because I just had to get the story out and then I would transfer it later by hand to another notepad and then once I got out of solitary confinement I took all those notepads and typed them up into a book. I actually still have like all of my original writings. Once you got out of solitary confinement and you went to the regular prison system which is also horrible but that's where you did have access to a typewriter. Yeah I bought my own typewriter and so I was able to use a little word processor really cheap. I can only see like 13 words at a time on a screen. So I would meticulously type up these books I had handwritten, print them out, and then retype them up so that I'll have two copies. So I would type for like hundreds of pages over the course of months. Before I got out of prison, I wrote about four books and I hand wrote all of them and then I typed all of them up multiple times just so I can make sure that my writings were safe because I would send them home as soon as I got a chance to type them up in case the officers came in and wanted to destroy them. Wow. And when you were in solitary confinement, did you have access to books? You can order books from the library. Oftentimes, the books that you order wouldn't come. Sometimes they would bring them or they'll bring substitute. If you had money on your prison account, you could order books from different outlets. And so whenever I got any money from my family, I would just order books. And so I had so many books in prison in my cell that every now and then the officers would come raid my cell and say, hey, you got to send these books home. And I would say, well, why can't I just share them with the guys on the, on the cell block? And they would say that's against policy, against prison rules. So, you know, sometimes I would sneak and give books away. And whenever they just raided my room and did a search and they found the books, they would take them. And then they would make me go through a hearing and I would have to send them home. So... It's really interesting because now some of the books that I have on my shelf currently are books that I actually had in prison that I had to send home to my dad. Ah, it's frustrating to understand that human beings are doing this to other human beings and that it's part of a system. Why is it so hard to change the system? I mean, we're all aware that it's broken. I think one of the reasons it's been so hard up until recently is we didn't have any credible witnesses who can speak at volume with the type of elocution that allow people from any background to really understand how wrong the system is. You know, I did a talk at Ted's 30th anniversary in 2014, and it was the first time that somebody who had actually been convicted of a crime as serious as I had been convicted of was speaking on that type of platform. And that talk began to find its way to politicians and you know, the ability to speak to these things and be in proximity. I mean, of course, you have 
incredible people like Brian Stevenson, who's working with people on death row to get them free and, and bringing people in proximity to that experience. And I think, you know, even social media platforms and platforms like this have allowed our voices to not be suffocated. You know, for decades, there was this kind of fear-based mongering of, you know, we have to be on tough on crime in order to be safe. But the reality is it proved to be the complete opposite. And so there's just been a group of us, many organizations, you know, that's doing incredible work that not only are we doing the work, but we're actually telling the stories and people are now owning their stories and ability to express it in a way that's just not deniable. And I think that those things have helped us shift the narrative some, but it's tough. I mean, the War on Drugs campaign was probably one of the most successful marketing campaigns in history. And the reality is, you know, the education level of, of the prison population is about average reading level is third grade. And so to get credible witnesses out of that environment was very difficult because not as many can write and articulate it. And I mean, we've been fortunate. Myself, I was inspired by great writers who were in prison getting their stories out and smuggling out the truth. You know, we kept smuggling it out. And so when I got released, I just knew I had a responsibility to keep that energy on to tell these stories. And now we're seeing a shift for the first time in history where we have bipartisan agreement that our prison system is completely flawed. And it's for different reasons. Some people only care about it because it's cost so much, the cost of it, you know, and then other people just recognize that it's morally wrong. Uh, but for me, it doesn't matter how they arrive at the right conclusion as long as they get there. And so my job is to help people really see the truth of how you overcome a system such as ours. Amazing. I love that there's so much hope that this system can be transformed. Now, I want to get your advice on this. You wrote a famous Medium article on how to survive isolation. What would be your biggest tips for the people around the world right now who are isolated in their homes? All right, so here's the five things that I think would be really helpful for people navigating quarantine right now. One is journaling. I think that is such an important gift to give to yourself. And the way that it worked for me, it allowed me to see myself clearly. I saw it as meditation on paper. It allowed me to express my anxiety and be real about it. The second thing is I set a real goal, and I think that this is a great opportunity for people who've ever imagined writing a book or finishing a project to really take the opportunity to spend some time working on that. With me, I just made a commitment to writing five pages a day. In 30 days, I had my first book. And so the third thing I would say is writing letters. You know, we have a lot of people in our community who don't use technology, a lot of our elders, and it really would be important for them to be able to receive letters but also it gives us a real free and healthy space to express what we're going through in a meaningful way. The fifth thing, like I was like, yo, I'm gonna start cooking more. I've been doing a lot of cooking and I think that that idea of actually doing something to serve yourself and to treat yourself with love and kindness, I think those are some really good tools to ensure that you're getting through it healthy and whole. You have to acknowledge the things that you're experiencing and your feelings and they're valid and they're legit. You don't have to compare them to the extreme and being in prison. You know, you can just acknowledge that this feels uncomfortable right now. Yep. And the fifth thing, the fifth and final thing would be going back to school. And what I mean by that is not actually enrolling in school and accumulating more student debt, but really taking the opportunity to learn one of those things that you've always thought you wanted to learn about. For me, I want to learn how to play a good tire. So I've been looking at lessons online that's easily accessible and it just allows me to get out of the normal way of thinking about the inconvenience of quarantine and really being present in my own life. So 
those are things that I think would be really helpful for you to get through quarantine. Amazing, Shaka. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation. And I know a lot of people who are listening are going to really, you give people hope. And you make people put things in perspective, no matter how annoyed we might be with the quarantine we're in. There are millions of people in the world today, in America alone, that's going through far worse. So thank you so much for sharing your Thanks wisdom. Thanks so much for having me. And for all of you who want to learn more about Shaka, he has an amazing website. Check out his book, maybe book him as a speaker if you're looking for a great speaker. And you can find that on shakasenghor.com. Com. Now, let me spell that out to you. It is Shaka, S-H-A-K-A, Senghor, S-E-N-G-H-O-R.com, ShakaSenghor.com. Shaka, for the Mind Valley audience, is there anything we can do for you to help support you with your mission? I think the one thing I would like for the Mind Valley audience to do is to really think about the men and women who are currently incarcerated. They are in the most vulnerable position out of everybody in the country right now and in the world because they don't have the opportunity to socially distance or physically distance themselves. And so they're really, we're really sitting on a humanitarian crisis time bomb if we don't act now with intention and the integrity of what it means to be human. So the greatest thing you could do is reach out to people in the prisons and jails in your environment, community, see how you can help, whether it's getting masks inside, whether it's getting hygiene kits inside or talking to the governor to encourage them to compassionately release people safely back to the community so that they don't have to be subjected to potential contraction of coronavirus in that environment. Thank you so much. Folks, thank you for listening. Go to shakasenghor.com. And don't forget to leave us a review for the Mind Valley podcast, and I'll see you next week. Lakiani, and this is the Mind Valley Podcast. If you like the Mind Valley Podcast, take the next step. Become a Mind Valley member. Imagine being coached daily by the greatest teachers on the planet. How quickly would you transform your health, your mindset, your body? your relationships? How quickly would you double the size of your company? How quickly would you see your career grow? How quickly would you eliminate any limiting belief that's holding you back and manifest a life that you once thought beyond your dreams? When you become a member, you don't just get access to the greatest education in the world. You become part of a community of 150,000 of the most incredible people dedicated to personal growth. Go to mindvalley.com forward slash now to get started.